0: Titus 3, 1 and 2, but I'll uh, we'll be looking at, uh, I'll be reading 2, 11 through 3, 2. It can be found on page 998 in the Pew Bible. So Titus 2, back in verse 11 for context. Titus two eleven and then through 3, 2 on page 998 in the Pew Bible. Titus two eleven, starting in verse 11. And rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready for every good work. To speak evil of no one. To avoid quarreling. To be gentle and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven we do ask now that you would speak to us through your word. Give us wisdom and insight into your word that we might know you better, that we might know how to live in our sinful and fallen world in a way that honors you and glorifies you. In Jesus' name, amen. Throughout the history of the church, Christians have considered how they are to live out their faith in the world. And we've often wrestled with that One's beliefs, how one's beliefs about the corruption of the world, can be reconciled with the encouragement or exhortation to live within the world. This is something that the parents wrestle with, right? Seek to discern on a regular basis as they raise their own children. One of my personal evangelist professors at Southern, he observed that there's been generally there's been four ways Christians have related to the world. Here's the four. One, total separation, so monastery, no contact. Total immersion, lots of contact but no impact. Split adaptation, the Sunday only Christians, the hypocrites. And then transformation, in but not of the world. So there, there's a spectrum of responses, everything from full avoidance of the world to thoughtless immersion in the world. And then, and then in the middle, people might, be, might take a, a cautious or, or limited approach on how we are to relate to the world. In our text this morning, we're reminded to live out the Christian life as we participate in the world. Submitting to authorities, actively engaging in doing what is good, and speaking and displaying courtesy toward all people, so that the church's witness in the world might be enhanced. And that's how we become, and we've talked about this throughout our entire series in Titus, that's how we become agents of transformation. And this, this, this letter that has been about this, how we are agents or witnesses in our fallen world. So when we evaluate this question, when we evaluate what our involvement is in the world, what I want to do is put some flesh on what that actually looks like. What does it look like to be in the world, but not of it? So there's two questions we're going to ask this morning as we dive into this text. Number one, how do we relate to governing authorities? And number two, how do we relate to unbelievers or outsiders in general? How do we relate to the governing authorities? And then he broadens it out. How do we relate to outsiders or unbelievers in general? So, first, be submissive to governing authorities. Be submissive to governing authorities. Notice the first part of verse 1. So, chapter 3, verse 1. Remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. So Paul tells Titus to remind them, that that is, the the believers in Crete, and those in 2.11-15, those who have received and experienced the saving grace of God in their lives. Those who have been trained, are being trained to live for Jesus Christ in this present age. So this is a reminder to the church, a reminder to those who are trusting in Jesus Christ, and recipients of his grace. We recognized that 2:11 through 15 served as the foundation for Christian living in the church and in society, right? 2:1 through 10 there was instructions on how we live in the church as we relate to believers, and then he grounds it in 2:11 through 15, and now here we are, instructions on how to live in society and in our world. And then next week we're going to see the motivation for Christian living. In 3 through 8. So, the call to live out the Christian life has the grace and mercy of God as its foundation and motivation. I, I don't want us to miss this because what Paul is seeking after is a lifestyle for those who claim the name of Jesus, those who profess to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. He doesn't expect this of the unbelievers in the world, nor should we. Because oftentimes we demand, I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but we demand of our unbelieving friends Christ like living without any relationship to Jesus Christ. And then we end up doing the very things that Paul tells us not to do here in this text. We don't submit to governing authorities. And we, we slander our unbelieving friends. We slander unbelievers in general because we're holding them to the same standard that we're to be held to. And we forget that we've been saved by God's grace. So this is a call and a reminder for believers in Jesus Christ to live a certain way. So Paul tells Titus to remind them, remind the church to live in a certain way in relation to rulers and authorities. We understand the importance of reminders We know that reminders serve to move us to action or prevent us from action. Teachers last week, and and even this week, will tell their students what they expect of them and what's required in their classroom. And then throughout the year, what they'll do is they'll give reminders, constant reminders. Remember what I told you back on day one? They even probably have to do that this week. Remember what I told you Friday? Remember that. Today's only Monday. Remember what I just told you. Right? So constant reminders are necessary. We remind our children, or that our children remind us that they have a game, or they, they, have to, they have some event at school that they have to be at. So we put reminders on our phones, we put reminders on our fridge, so that we won't forget what we're supposed to do. A reminder implies a prior knowledge. When you're reminded of something, it is intended to move you to action or prevent an action in the present time, right? For whatever reason, these Cretan believers needed a reminder to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. The church was already aware of this teaching, whether directly from the Apostle Paul or from Titus. This was behavior that was expected of Christians. They were to be submissive to governing authorities, whether the government was godly or not. We know that in Crete, it was a pagan government, generally corrupt, far worse conditions than we have ever had in the U.S. In the days of Jesus and the early church, uh, government was, was anything but godly or moral. Civil disobedience was a major problem. But the responsibility of Christians was still the same. And our responsibility is still the same. And that is to uphold the rule of law and be marked by obedience to what's established in society. You see, Jesus, he was questioned at one point. Perhaps you recall this story. He was was questioned by the Pharisees. They tried to trap him. And they said, Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Jesus, being aware of their malice, called them out on it and concluded, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Paul picks up on this teaching in Romans 13, 1-7. It's likely that this truth is what Titus was to remind the church of. I'm not going to read the entire passage in, in Romans 13, but Romans 13:1 says this, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. And then he goes on and says that those who resist the authorities therefore resist what God has appointed. And these authorities are ultimately to carry out their task of punishing evil and rewarding those who do good. And so then Paul concludes his exhortation in Romans 13:7. He says this, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. In other words, God is sovereign over Caesar. It is right to pay ta- the tax, which was their duty to Caesar. But they had a, they had a greater obligation to God. Their obligation demanded submission and loyalty. Earthly rulers are put in place by God to serve the citizens on earth. Submitting to Caesar or, or any ruling authority is part of our submission to God. It is not an option. Paying taxes was an example of submitting to the authorities. So in Titus, in Titus, Paul is not unpacking all the different scenarios on whether you when you should or should not submit to rulers and authorities. But what is saying in general is this. Believers have an obligation to obey the ruling, governing authorities, even pagan and corrupt leaders. Paul was not naive to the history of Israel. And we of all people should know the chaos that happens as a result of laws being rejected, refused, and dismissed. Now, you're probably thinking in your head, all right, hold on, hold on. Does this mean blind obedience to ruling authorities? No. We know several instances in the Bible of people who resisted and firmly stood for truth or responded to the various laws with action. Right? The, Hebrew, the Hebrew midwives in, in Exodus 1 Daniel and Daniel one and Daniel six, right, the story of Daniel and Lion's Den. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in Daniel three, they refused to bow the knee. Esther, we're familiar with the story of Esther. Peter and John in Acts four, they would not stop preaching the gospel, even though they were told to do so by the authorities. So the the command to be submissive to rulers and authorities does not mean that we can't and don't stand up for truth or righteousness or integrity with respect to government and various laws. We resist and submission and and obedience to governing authorities if the action leads us into sin or if we have to compromise our relationship with Jesus Christ or violate a biblical principle or our conscience We're familiar with these various exceptions, and sometimes we focus too much on these, right? Sometimes we just focus on the exception, and we use that as a cover for our rebellious heart. Let's focus on the main point, that those who follow Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior are to be law-abiding citizens. Upholding, promoting, encouraging, and supporting those in authority. Submission to and cooperation with governing authorities will enhance our Christian witness in the world. Second, second, be ready for every good work. In the last part of verse 1, Paul tells Titus to remind them to be ready for every good work. Not only are the believers in Crete to be submissive to governing authorities with an active obedience from the heart, but they are to be ready for every good work. So Paul, what Paul's doing now is he's broadening the the instructions for believers from their relationship specifically to governing authorities to now all people, all people, to all situations. Not just the public sphere, but all of life. Now we know, we know that good works do not save us, they do not, they do not earn God's acceptance, but they flow out of a heart that has been changed by God. We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9 really well, and perhaps we've memorized it, but sometimes we forget Ephesians two ten, right? 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing, it is a gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And then 2.10, For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Good works are the evidence that we have been rescued from our sins by God's grace. We trust not in our works, but in the finished work of Jesus Christ for us. In his sacrificial death on our behalf. Even back in verse 14, Jesus gave himself for us to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are what? Who are zealous for good works. So, what does Paul mean when he says, be ready for every good work? Be ready. The question I heard a lot the, the past few weeks, and even asked the students and, and even their parents, "Are you ready for school to start? Are you ready for school to start?" We, we often hear questions about being ready for something. Are you ready for summer? Right? Students seem to be ready for summer back in the winter time. Are you ready for your test? Put me in, coach. I'm ready to play. Or, we're ready to eat. Or, what I say often, late at night, I'm ready for bed. I'm ready for bed. Or, kids play hide and seek, ready or not, here I come. Throughout the New Testament, we see that we are to be ready for the return of Jesus because he's coming at an hour that we do not expect. We're to be ready to make a defense for the hope that is in us. Paul was ready to share the gospel to those who were in Rome, in Romans 1. Paul was ready not only to be imprisoned, but even die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus, in Acts 21. And so now Paul tells Titus to remind the church to be ready for every good work. When we think of this command, be ready, we see that it involves proactive, being proactive, being prepared, intentional, eager, and willing. What Paul calls us to do is to be ready for every good work. Good works are the things that are done in obedience to God, to His commands, with a good motive, and done in faith. It literally means doing what is good. Good works means doing what is good. So this phrase, be ready for every good work, means that we're not to be passive doers of good, right? just being moral people, being nice people, but actively seeking to do what is good. For us to be proactive and prepared to do good means that we recognize that there is a need to engage in whatever good conduct we can in order to create goodwill and a conducive environment for spreading the gospel. There's an eagerness, right? So be ready for every good work means there's an eagerness to contribute and serve for the benefit of others. What might this look like? In Jeremiah 29, when God's people were sent into exile in Babylon, Jeremiah sent a letter to the exiles declaring the word of the Lord on how the people were to live in exile. How are they to live under Gentile pagan rule? He says this, Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Marry. Have children. Multiply there and do not decrease. And then in verse 7, Jeremiah 29, 7, Pursue the well-being of the city I have sent you into exile. That I have sent you into exile. And pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it thrives, you will thrive. There is an active engagement, involvement in the world, in looking for ways to do good to your neighbor, to your friends, to your coworkers, to those in our community, ultimately so that the gospel would be adorned. Right? Paul does not lose sight of its impact on the world around them. It would be profitable for people. We're going to see that in verse 8. It is profitable and beneficial for people. So seek occasions for doing what is Good. Now, how does this happen? How does this happen? How do you get ready for every good work? All right? We know how to get ready for some event. How do you get ready for every good work? How do you get ready to do what's good? Two ways. Number one, in 2 Timothy 2.21, cleansing oneself from the things that do not honor God enables you to be ready for every good work. By cleansing ourselves from the things that do not honor God, we become a useful instrument in the Redeemer's hand. Which again, highlights the, the significance of, of being in the world, but not of it. Right? This is not a thoughtless immersion. I'm in the world, and I have no impact. We are to be useful instruments in God's hand. Number two... In 2 Timothy 3.17, the Bible. The Bible trains us. And being trained in it, it makes us competent for every good work. Therefore, a devotion to God and his word prepares us, makes us ready to be of good use and service to those in our community. You want to make a difference in the world around you? We need to be cleansed from our sins. We need to be instruments in God's hand. We need to study and focus on God's word. and Let that change us and transform us. Then we can make an impact in the world around us. Then we are ready to do what is good to those around us. It should be the desire of your heart, the desire of my heart, to be set apart for God's purposes. To be useful to him and to be ready to do what God would have us do. We might be too busy. I'm too busy to do anything that's good for others. It's not a high priority. Or we've, we've believed that we're to avoid society. I'm just not even supposed to be in the world at all. And so then we don't do anything good because we're focused on ourselves. Or we've given in to a thoughtless immersion in the world in which we remain unchanged. You see, the false teachers in Crete were unfit for any good work back in 116 because they were disobedient, they were deceptive, disruptive, dismissive of the truths in Scripture. If we forget our mission and why we are saved by God, we won't be prepared to do what is good. We are to be a light to the nations that God's salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So this is a call to proactively live out what you profess to be true and what Christ has accomplished for you. To be prepared and willing to participate in activities that promote the good of the community. Out of an awareness of the truth and an eagerness to see the gospel spread and adorned. Third and finally, third and finally, speak kindly and show courtesy toward all people. So look with me now at verse two. So we're reminded now to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Paul concludes this section by drawing our attention to our speech and our conduct and our actions in relation to unbelievers in general. So now he's asking, now we're asking and answering, how do we relate to unbelievers in general? How do we relate to unbelievers in general? Two negative statements and two positive statements. There's behavior and speech that we are to avoid and behavior that we are to pursue. We are to speak evil of no one and avoid We are called here to not slander anyone or insult anyone, whether it's governing authorities, whether it's our neighbor, whether it's those in our community or those we work with. As Christians, we must not say anything that is harmful toward or about unbelievers. We must not curse them, we must not insult them, defame them, slander their name or reputation. We are not to gossip or stir up strife or or trouble towards anyone. It doesn't matter what they've done to you. We must not speak evil against anyone. Our fallen tendency is to say hurtful and bad things about unbelievers. We end up slandering them and I already mentioned this, we end up slandering them because we expect them to live the way we're called to live as followers of Christ, even though they don't have a relationship with Jesus. And then we act like a Pharisee. We compare ourselves to them and say, oh, we don't do that. Do you see what they did? And then it results in us speaking evil about them. And we forget our identity apart from Jesus Christ, which we're going to look at next week. You're going to see it in verse 3. For we once were that way, but God saved us. We forget our identity apart from Christ. We'll look at that next week. What we need to remember is Paul's, is Christ's example and reflect him in our speech. All right, so 1 Peter Two, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. James reminds us in James 3, The tongue is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, And with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Evil speech, cursing, threats, insults, slander should not characterize us as followers of Jesus. I'm concerned that, that social media, though not to blame, right, we could, oh, social media, social media not to blame only reveals our sinful and fallen tendency. And it has, it's become, in some sense, it's become a platform for, for getting things off your chest and airing complaints and problems with friends or two friends. Right? We see this on Facebook. It's done to get affirmation from friends. Have you ever noticed that? We say things about other people to our friends so they would affirm what's, what we want them to say, what we, what we hold to. And that only fans the flame. Have you ever spoken evil about someone to someone who knows they're going to call you out on it? No, we just get affirmation. Affirmation. If we do this as Christians, we lose our credibility and witness. Let's use, if we use social media, let's use it in a way that builds up, helps others, assists, aids others. We also see here that we are to avoid quarreling. And oftentimes we know that evil speech is a result of quarreling, conflicts, fights, battles. To avoid quarreling literally means without battle. Your translation might say to be peaceable. It describes a person that's non-confrontational. A quarrelsome person is argumentative, looks for a fight without a cause, they're opinionated and contentious. And then the last two reminders that we see here highlight a positive aspect that we are to pursue. So we're to avoid speaking evil against people. We're to avoid quarreling. And now we're to pursue, we're to be gentle and show perfect courtesy toward all people. This word gentle has a a wide range of meanings. Sometimes translated kind, reasonable, or considerate. It carries with it the idea of free from harshness. It can be defined as someone who's yielding, gentle, tolerant. It's been described as an attitude of someone who doesn't hold a grudge. They don't hold grudges. They give someone the benefit of the doubt, right? They give the, their unbelieving friends the benefit of the doubt. It refers to a person who is gracious or forbearing. And lastly, Paul says in this final exhortation, show perfect courtesy toward all people. Courtesy is to be shown, displayed, and visible toward outsiders. To show perfect courtesy means that we're not arrogant, we're not proud, we're not cocky, but humble. We take into consideration the well-being of others. We do not insist on our own rights and needs, but give thought, to the interests of others above our own. We are to patiently bear any wrongdoing done to us and be quick to help those who have been wronged or mistreated. That's the idea. To what we It involves having an others-centered approach to what we do. These godly qualities in our speech and in our actions should be evident in the lives of those who have been redeemed by. Jesus Christ and who are zealous for good works. When an unbeliever looks at your life and hears your words and sees your actions, it should be beneficial and profitable for them. Let's seek to live out the Christian life this week in these ways, that we'd be ready for every good work, we'd be prepared to do what's good, we'd look for ways to aid and assist others. We would speak kindly with our words, that we would avoid quarreling, that we would show perfect courtesy toward all people. And as we seek to be in the world but not of it, find ways this week, just think of this week, find ways to bless your unbelieving friends, your unbelieving co-workers, perhaps with a word, perhaps with an attitude or an action. Let's be intentional and proactive in our communities for the sake of Christ so that the light of Christ might be seen today in our acts of love and deeds of faith. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we recognize that obedience to your commands is not only the outworking of our faith, but there's an intentionality to it that the gospel would move forward, that the gospel would spread, that our witness would reach those around us, that Christ's name would be exalted by others, that others would give glory to you in heaven. Would you work in us to to submit to governing authorities? Would you prepare us to be to be ready for every good work, that we would devote ourselves to you and to your word and, and be used of you how you see fit. Would you help us this week not speak evil of other people? Would we be kind and gracious in our words, build others up? And would we show perfect courtesy toward all people? In Jesus' name, amen.